Welcome to the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition podcast. I'm Dr. Manpreet Mundi, a guest editor for JPEN. Joining me today is Dr. Yasin Arabi, author of the paper entitled Nutrition Support for Critically Ill Patients, which is published in the 2021 November supplement of JPEN. Dr. Arabi is a physician and consultant for the intensive care department, King Abdul Aziz Medical City, and is professor in the College of Medicine, King Saud bin Abdul Aziz University for Health Sciences in Riyadh in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Thank you again, Dr. Arabi, for joining me today and for your tremendous review of the literature pertaining to nutrition support in critically ill patients. Before we start our discussion, do you have any disclosures on this topic to share? Uh, I don't have any significant disclosures. Great. Your manuscript does a tremendous job of describing the growth in evidence in nutrition management of critically ill patients over the last decade. Um, If we can go through some of those key advancements and the changes they have led to in our management of these patients, could we start with malnutrition assessment? What are unique factors related to critical illness, and how do they lead or contribute to the development of malnutrition? Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mundi, for the opportunity to be with you today. And indeed, we have learned a lot over the last 10 years in the field of critical care nutrition. We do recognize that malnutrition is so common in critically ill patients, and uh, studies, as described in the paper, estimate uh, that uh, malnutrition prevalence is between 40 to almost 80% of patients, so common. The challenge with malnutrition is that we really don't have a gold standard way to assess malnutrition. We use different things. We use clinical assessment. We use skin fold measurement. We use sometimes biomarkers are used, but it turned out that all these tests have limited uh, sensitivity and specificity. Evolving areas are some of the scores, nutrition screening, the Nitric score, which has been popular because it has been validated in multiple observational studies to be associated with worse outcome and that patients who do not receive sufficient amount of feeds who are in the um, high end of the Nitric score worse than those who receive a um, good amount of nutrition. The challenge is that uh, the evidence that was derived from observational studies uh, has not been confirmed in randomized controlled trials, which makes it challenging for the applicability. In fact, in in a post hoc analysis from the permissive underfeeding trial, patients in the high nutrient score uh, who were fed uh, in the permissive underfeeding or full feeding did not make much difference. So it was the same it was in the low nutrient score. So I think it is important to understand the concept of malnutrition and have a general assessment, perhaps to guide early to make sure that we start nutrition early on the patients. But beyond this, I think there's a lot of work need to be done to characterize uh, malnutrition. Yeah, and you, you mentioned starting nutrition early. What is your general approach uh, to provision of nutrition? When do you start and what is your typical caloric target recommendations? So for the timing, I think we have reasonably good amount of evidence that starting nutrition within the first 24 hours 
up to 48 hours of critical illness is associated with less mortality. This is based on multiple randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews. However, if you look critically at some of these studies, you'll find many of them have been done decades ago, and some of them have limitations, small sample size. So based on this evidence, which is somewhat limited, but also based on um, studies that showed delayed feeding causes atrophy of the intestinal mucosa and uh, multiple changes in the immune response in the bowel, etc. I think it's really sensible to start nutrition early. Most clinical practice guidelines recommend that we should start some degree of internal nutrition within 24 hours or 48 hours. The second part of your question is how much, and that I think has been answered to some extent in multiple studies in terms of the energy. One of them was our trial, the permissive underfeeding, in which we randomized patients to receive moderate amount of calories, 40 to 60% of the estimated energy needs versus full amount of calories. We did not find a difference in mortality. The EDEN trial compared trophic feeding versus full feeding in patients with acute lung injury for a total of six days, did not find a difference in mortality. And also the target trial, which used energy-dense formula versus standard formula to provide higher amount of calories versus lower amount of calories, also did not find a difference. It appears, based on these, and these reasonably large trials, that probably, at least in the acute phase, it doesn't make much difference if you give high amount of calorie versus low amount of calorie. We know that giving too much calories actually causes hyperglycemia, higher dose of insulin, maybe gastric intolerance. And therefore now, I think the trend has been, at least in the first few days, it's okay to give moderate amount of calorie. It could be trophic feeding, permissive underfeeding, as much the patient tolerates, it's okay. But later, definitely, I think we need higher amount of calories. It is useful to think about the critical illness as two phases. There is one where it's an acute phase, you have the inflammatory response, the severe catabolic state, and the recovery phase where the, the metabolic state switches from catabolism to anabolism, where you will need more calories and more protein. So this is where we stand with the energy question. Uh, no, excellent. And when you describe that transition from the acute phase to the late phase, if the patient is not tolerating the enteral feeds, is that the time when you think about starting parental nutrition, whether it's supplemental or you know, meeting their caloric needs that way? Uh, that's a great question. And I, I think we have, uh, again, this is, has been an area for uh, multiple clinical trials to see when and what's the role of parental nutrition. So there had been a lot of interest in parental nutrition and perhaps even start very early in critical illness. And studies showed that the calories trial, which compared parental nutrition to enteral nutrition with the same amount of protein, same amount of calories, found that there is essentially no difference between the two. There is another trial about exclusive parental nutrition versus enteral nutrition. That was an interesting and important trial called Nutri Nutriria trial. It's a 
patients with shock on the reasonably high amount of vasopressors were randomized to receive parenteral versus internutrition. Again, the primary endpoint was not different between the two groups. So it looks like that the route of the nutrition, whether parental probably doesn't make much difference, especially now we have probably better care of the IV access, so the risk of infection probably less, etc. So maybe that that's not the issue. Although enteral nutrition is preferred to maintain the gut integrity, that's that's for sure. How about parenteral nutrition if the patient is not tolerating enteral nutrition? Certainly that makes a lot of sense, supplemental enteral nutrition. And that has been tested also in multiple trials. The biggest one that really have made change in many guidelines is the PANIC trial in adults and the similar one, the PANIC trial in children, where critically ill patients were randomized to early versus late initiation of parenteral nutrition. And the two trials showed very similar results. The recovery from critical illness was better with delayed parenteral nutrition. Parenteral nutrition was better. So starting parenteral nutrition as a supplement, probably better after one week. And that's most guidelines now. Say maybe first week, try enteral nutrition. If the patient tolerates good and well, if no, I think maybe reasonable time to start. Think about parenteral nutrition one week after the critical illness. Earlier, maybe you'll cause some problems. No, excellent. And I think you've you've brought up a number of points. So if I could go back to the enteral issue in shock, this is uh, use of enteral nutrition in shock. And this is probably where I get a number of questions and consults uh, being asked. Is it safe to give enteral nutrition in a patient who is in shock? Uh, Are we at risk for complications such as uh, gut ischemia? That's a very important question, as you said, and this comes up always at the bedside. And it is relevant because enteral nutrition is associated with increased demand for the gut perfusion. And in patients with shock and patients with inotropes, there may be limitation to this. And there, this is where the concerns come. In reality, most patients in shock are on small dose or stable doses of vasopressors would tolerate enteral nutrition with no major complications. I think the concerns comes in patients who are on a really high dose of vasopressors or escalating dose of vasopressors, or those patients are in an acute phase of resuscitation where the gut perfusion is so compromised that adding more metabolic demand to the gut may be problematic. So the Neuteria trial, which was uh, a trial done in patients with on high-dose vasopressors, I think the average dose of norepinephrine was about 0.4 microgram per kg per minute or so. Uh, so a reasonably high dose, and these were mechanically ventilated patients. The study did not show difference in the primary endpoint, but it found an increase in the rare events of gut ischemia. It was not common, but it increased by almost fourfold. There was a fourfold increase also in intestinal pseudo obstruction. So there is probably some risk in the patients who are on very high dose pressors 
active resuscitation, maybe these patients, I think you may wanna wait until things start to settle. But otherwise, for a majority of patients who are on small dose suppressors, I would start small dose of uh, feeding. And if the patient tolerated is okay, I think it's important to keep eye on the patient and the gastrointestinal tolerance. If the patient develops abdominal tension, you find lactic acidosis increasing, I think should re-examine the situation. Uh, but generally, I think intervention can be started in most patients. And so to switch topics to a little bit more controversial topic of protein targets, I think you had mentioned that, you know, in terms of parental nutrition, you prefer to delay starting parental nutrition for approximately one week because of uh, what's happening with the patient, especially in the acute phase. There's similar controversy in terms of protein, especially the protein target. Um, you know, some espouse that perhaps, especially early on, the protein target should be a little bit lower, maybe 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilograms. Others perhaps aim for a higher target of uh, amino acids. Where do you fall in this controversy? And, uh, you know, where, where do you see the data leading us? Yeah. So at present, the data is mainly based on observational studies. There have been small randomized controlled trials and the systematic reviews of these small trials did not show much difference between higher or lower protein. There are ongoing clinical trials on addressing early protein administration and later protein administration. And the points you raise are really the key issues in this controversy. Some believe that you should give protein early on, so you prevent catabolic state and degradation of the intrinsic proteins. Others believe that giving protein in the acute phase when you are uh, in the acute inflammation, etc., doesn't help stopping the catabolic state and maybe contribute to worse outcomes by inhibiting autophagy, etc. And maybe we should give protein at a later stage. We are at present conducting a clinical trial called Replenish. We're randomizing patients on day four to be started on day five of ICU to receive higher versus usual care, essentially. So receive high protein versus the usual care, which is, I would expect, around one gram or maybe less. The premise here is that giving higher protein during the recovery phase might be useful. There is also other trial, the effort trial, which is starting protein at almost day one, a higher versus lower protein. I think collectively these trials and, and other trials will help us understanding better how much protein we should give. At present, the clinical practice guidelines is I think what we should be following if we're not in a clinical trial, but the ranges that uh, clinical practice guidelines are, give are relatively wide from 1.2 to 2, 2.4. Kind of thing. So I, th I think hopefully in a couple of years, we'll have more answers. And more debate as well. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Definitely. I wish we could say we are going to be in an era beyond COVID-19, but I definitely want to discuss, you know, COVID-19 a bit since for the foreseeable future, you know, many of us will continue to manage patients who are critically ill from COVID-19. Uh, what have you seen that's been a bit different about this cohort versus your other critically ill patients? And what are the nutrition differences in management? 
Uh, I think COVID-19 brought to the ICU several different philosophy of care. We're certainly seeing more uh, patient treated non-invasively uh, with non-invasive ventilation or high flow and trying to avoid getting people to intubation. And that leads to patients staying on this modality of support for some time, a week, two weeks, sometimes even longer. Certainly during the COVID-19 era, we're using a lot of proning, ECMO, and all these uh, have their own issues with the feeding. So for non-invasive, I think we need to make sure that our patients are fed properly. And if, if uh, there are concerns about continuous non-invasive ventilation, I think we should try to give our patients some breaks to be to fed, maybe using high flow between non-invasive ventilation sessions. Prone positioning always an issue because keeping somebody prone for long time, 16 hours, is a problem if we keep the patient MPO. So we try actually to continue enteral feeding, maybe at a lower rate during proning, and try to catch up on the patient's supplying. ECMO generally patients, and especially respiratory ECMO, shouldn't be a major issue for enteral nutrition because the gut perfusion is really not that compromised. Uh, data about nutrition in ECMO are rather limited and mainly observational. And there are a couple of papers, even on VA ECMO, showing that probably okay. But I, I, can, I, I think these are observation studies. They have some limitations. But at least they are reassuring that generally it is safe. And these patients have chronic critical illness. And I think feeding is, is very important for them. Excellent. Uh, and I think in the last few uh, moments that we have, uh, I also wanted to ask where you think our field is headed. What are some of the gaps, you know, that we need to address? And what are some of the major advancements that you see us making in the next few years um, in terms of nutrition support for critically ill patients? I think there are a few basic questions that we really need to address. One of them is the protein question. It's so basic, so important uh, that we need to answer when we should give protein and how much we should be giving uh, our patients protein. Nutrition assessment and who would benefit from more aggressive uh, nutrition versus less aggressive approach individualized approach to nutrition also is important. I think we need to better understand the interplay between nutrition and mobility. We, again, the philosophy of ICU has changed over the last two decades from patients from fully sedated to patients now we're trying to keep them awake and try to mobilize early. What's the added value of nutrition to early mobility? And there are a few studies actually ongoing to try to address this question. The role of micronutrients, vitamins, some of them are still pending and need to be answered. They are so relevant. Uh, we need to answer them. So these are some of the uh, highlights of the questions that we need to address. I think personalized approach to nutrition, who can be benefited or even harmed from certain approaches of nutrition, we need to understand it. Excellent. I, I hope so too, um, especially with hopefully artificial intelligence or some computer models aiding us in personalizing nutrition. That's a key. 
So before we close, are there any uh, additional comments that you'd like to share with our listeners? I, I think we learned a lot of things about nutrition in the last 10 years. The thing that I still see that enter nutrition sometimes not started early in some of the patients. And I think we should not underestimate the value of starting enter nutrition early. And uh, we need to keep this part of our daily uh, checklist, if you wish, to make sure that uh, we don't lose it in the while we are busy with many, many other things with patients. I think sometimes nutrition is not prioritized enough. So for the, at the clinical bedside, this is what I always say, that we need to make sure that our patients started area nutrition and assist properly uh, and regularly. Otherwise, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to be with you here today and been a great honor to get this uh, paper together and to work with you on, on it. Thank you. No, thank you. I think the pleasure has been all mine. Again, thank you, uh, Dr. Rabi, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I want to invite our audience to find out more uh, about this topic by reading this and other articles in the 2021 November supplement of JPEN, uh, which was planned by the Aspen Physician Engagement Committee. To support what we do, uh, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. <music>